This is a Peace Talks Radio special, Making Peace with Our Earth. I'm Peace Talks Radio producer and co-founder Paul Ingalls. Since 2002, our public radio series and podcast has been devoted to exploring what we call the art and science of peacemaking and conflict resolution strategies. We cast a wide net in gathering peacemaking topics and have several times included a look at conflicts related to climate change. We've considered how climate change might be touching off more conflict as migrants rush away from communities destroyed or threatened by rising violent weather events. We've aired debates over what to do to mitigate climate change trends and whether anything should be done, as some still maintain. We've noted how this opinion divide and reluctance to follow climate science has further polarized political discourse in the U.S. On our programs, we've heard from environmental activists sounding the alarm in different, sometimes creative ways, others taking the steps themselves to hopefully have an impact on reversing the troubling trends, even in the smallest amounts. We've heard from others still struggling with the anxiety over exactly what to do or feel. We'll be hearing highlights from each of these shows on today's two-hour program of unfortunately timeless conversations. We haven't made a lot of progress, it seems, in all the years since, well, 2007, when the Nobel Peace Prize Committee saw the climate crisis as a threat to world peace and awarded that year's Peace Prize jointly to former U.S. Vice President and Environmental Crusader Al Gore and Vanjegla Pachawi, representing the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Peace can be defined as security and the secure access to resources that are essential for living. A disruption in such access could prove disruptive of peace. In this regard, climate change will have several implications as numerous adverse impacts are expected for some populations in terms of access to clean water, access to sufficient food, stable health conditions, ecosystem resources, security of settlements. Indeed, there are many lessons in human history which provide adequate warning about the chaos and destruction that could take place if we remain guilty of myopic indifference to the progressive erosion and decline of nature's resources. It is time to make peace with the planet. We must quickly mobilize our civilization with the urgency and resolve that has previously been seen only when nations mobilized for war. They were calls upon the courage, generosity, and strength of entire peoples, citizens of every class and condition, who were ready to stand against the threat once asked to do so. Now comes the threat of climate crisis, a threat that is real, rising, imminent, and universal. Once again, it is the 11th hour. The penalties for ignoring this challenge are immense and growing, and at some near point would be unsustainable and unrecoverable. For now, we still have the power to choose our fate. And the remaining question is only this, have we the will to act? vigorously and in time, or will we remain imprisoned by a dangerous illusion? There is an African proverb that says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We need to go far, quickly. Former U.S. Vice President and climate crisis crusader Al Gore. We also heard from Vajengla Pachawi of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Excerpts from their Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speeches from December of 2007. Today on Peace Talks Radio, our host Carol Boss takes us into more conversation about this topic. First with Dan Smith, 
Secretary General of International Alert, an independent peace-building organization that works in over 20 countries to promote lasting peace and security in communities affected by violent conflict. Dan Smith is the author of the report, A Climate of Conflict, The Links Between Climate Change, Peace, and War. Smith says understanding this link between the effects of climate change and world peace and security means understanding what he calls the consequences of consequences. Global warming, which is um, caused by, uh, largely by uh, carbon emissions, leads to changes in weather patterns. And those changes in weather patterns mean then that there are consequences like uh, rising sea levels, melting uh, glaciers, rainy seasons, some places get longer, in some places there's less rainfall, the crop cycle gets shorter, and so on. And then as you follow through, all of those, the physical effects, have further consequences in the sense that they make uh, the lives of people harder. Uh, For example, in Peru, the melting of the tropical glaciers is a really serious problem. Most of those glaciers will have melted by 2015. And while to begin with that means that there will be um, uh, an overabundant supply of water, in relatively short time frame there's actually going to be shortages of water. And west of the Andes, which is where three quarters of the uh, population of Peru lives, currently 98% of their fresh water supply is from the glaciers. So the overwhelming proportion of the water supply for the vast majority of the population of of Peru is under threat from climate change. Now, what is going to be the consequences of that? Um, Is it possible that, for example, water prices will rise, that left um, to itself, the result will produce uh, water profiteering? Um, How will ordinary people respond to water profiteering? We've actually seen from within Peru that they respond with protest and that sometimes those protests have turned violent. What will be the further effects of that? All the time we are tracing through the consequences of the consequences and trying to look at what are the risks which are being generated here. Because what we want to do is to say, well, how could, how could it be possible to intervene? Uh, how could it be possible for the government of Peru, possibly backed by the Organization of American States, poss- perhaps with the help of the Inter-American Development Bank or with the help of foreign donors, how could they uh, intervene in order to reduce those risks and start um, breaking this chain of consequences of consequences and turn it in a different direction. And I think sometimes people sort of find it a bit difficult to get their heads round all of the imponderables in this. And the only thing which I can say in response to that is, well, we have to get our heads around all of these imponderables. The future is going to be different from the past. And we, if we're going to survive that future, and if we're going to even prosper in that future, we have to figure out the ways in which it could be different, and where those ways are are negative and potentially even disastrous, then we've got to figure out a counter-strategy. Something that was really striking for me in your report was um, the concept that no conflict ever has a single cause, and I'm wondering if we can talk for a few minutes about Darfur. You say that Darfur is actually an exemplary case showing how the physical consequences of climate change interact with other factors to trigger violent 
conflict. Yes, that's right. Darfur has been referred to by various people, including British politicians, as being the first climate change conflict. And the implication of that is that in Darfur, climate change caused the conflict, caused the displacement of um, some millions of people, caused the death of uh, maybe two, three hundred thousand civilians, has caused the serious abuse of human rights and, and so on. And we say, no, it's always misleading to say that one thing caused that conflict. War, you know, is a really serious enterprise and people do not enter upon this lightly. They enter upon it because of uh, the interplay of a number of different factors which either leaves them with no, with a sense of no alternative except to go to war or the sense of a very big advantage to be gained if they do go to war. But it's never a, an enterprise which is, which is taken up lightly. And in Darfur, you have a long, long history of relations between different groups. Uh, these relations include um, some which are competitive and, and rivalries and some uh, different groups cooperating with each other. It's not quite as simple as saying that these are Arabs and um, Africans who are in conflict with each other. It's not quite as simple as saying that it's herders and farmers who are in conflict with each other. And during the 70s and 80s, there was the beginning of a sort of a rising tide of violent conflict in the Darfur region, which mostly didn't get any international attention. But the pressure from extended drought in the 1970s and the 1980s has made all of these already existing conflict divisions much, much worse. During the 90s, the escalation in violence was, was quite marked and um, it f blew up to its um, current dimensions in, in 2003. And so what we've seen unfolding in Darfur is the interaction between uh, climate change in the form of the much more extended and much worse drought than had previously been experienced, together with political division, um, the marginalization of the Darfur region, uh, a callous attitude from Khartoum, um, a certain amount of traditional ethnic division and tribal divisions and so on, all of these factors interplaying with each other. And so where, where we get to in our argument well, is not to say climate change will cause conflict, but to say climate change interacting with other factors, other, if you like, weaknesses in the political, social, economic makeup of a country can seriously increase the risk of armed conflict. And that, that's what we looked into in our report. There's so much discussion going on about all of this right now. And there are those who write about, those who speak about and believe that the link between climate change and conflict is tenuously made and has not been demonstrated. And how do you respond to that? Well, I've seen uh, some of these studies, and they're serious studies, but I think the thing to bear in mind with all of this is there are two things, right? One is those people who've been thinking about global warming and climate change over uh, the past couple of decades have rightly taught us to understand that the future is going to be different from the past. So if you research past patterns of the relationship between 
uh, environment or climate and conflict and you don't find a clear relationship, you may be accurately researching what did happen from, let's say, 1960 to 1999, but this may not be telling you what is likely to happen from now and henceforth. And the second thing is that we are not talking about making hard and fast predictions. We're talking about risk and we're talking about the management of risk. And if there is a case to be made, as we believe there is, that there is a serious risk of um, conflict as a result of the interaction between the consequences of climate change and other social reality, then surely something ought to be done about it. If there's a serious risk of um, an accident, shouldn't you do something to try to prevent that accident? Shouldn't you drive more safely? Shouldn't you walk on the pavement instead of in the middle of the highway? And so on and so forth. It's, it's really no more complicated than that. And I don't think that arguments which show that there's no proof of a connection between climate change and conflict over the previous three decades or four decades are any kind of a guide whatsoever as to what the links could be and what we should um, do out of sensible caution over the next two to three decades. And in your report, you, um, a phrase that I, I read over and over again is not only the, it's the notion of a different approach that you talk about being possible, but you say it's based on peace building and engaging communities. Yeah. What we found as we went into it was that many of the, the activities that you would carry out in order to adapt successfully to the threat of climate change are the same as the kind of activities that you do in order to build peace. And this is because the key to it in both cases is the involvement of the community at the base. You've got to have government support for this. It's got to be led and inspired from the national level. Almost certainly that needs international assistance for resourcing it and for providing encouragement. But if you don't have the energy at the community level, if you don't have the drive coming from there, from local leaders, from traditional leaders, and from elected leaders, this can't be done top-down, on command. It can only be done bottom-up with the involvement of ordinary people. Climate change could be the threat against which we just have to unite, whether we like it or not. And these tasks of adaptation which need to be carried out, these could be the tasks around which divided communities could cooperate, maybe for the first time, and learn the habit of cooperation and learn the habit of working together. So actually, a climate change could be the opportunity to be building a peaceful society. It's almost like it's the last thing that really forces you back against the wall, into the corner. You've now got nowhere to go except in a peaceful direction. Dan Smith is Secretary General of International Alert, an independent organization that's promoting peace in over 20 countries. In 2007, he authored the report A Climate of Conflict, the links between climate change, peace, and war. I'm Paul Ingalls, and that's our topic today, and you can link to that report through our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Next, we visit with Thomas Homer Dixon, chair at the Trudeau Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Toronto. He's devoted much of his academic career since the late 1980s, exploring the connection between environmental stress and violence in developing countries. Can you 
kind of explain in more detail what you define as um, environmental stress? Within the work that we did during that decade, uh, we were focusing in particular on uh, renewable resources in poor countries. Uh, In those days, and it's still largely true, about half the world's population depends upon local supplies of fresh water, of cropland, of fuel wood, to provide for their daily survival. And we looked at places where those were under stress, where those resources were degraded or overused, where perhaps there were too many people for the resources that were available in those areas, and then tried to understand what kind of effects those scarcities of cropland, forests, and water had on people. You know, how did it affect their lives? How did, did it make them poorer? Did it cause them to move? Uh, did it uh, deepen divisions between ethnic groups in their, in their communities? Uh, did it weaken institutions, weaken, uh, say, local governments and even national governments? So we investigated all of those things really, really closely with an eye on what the, what the possibilities were for conflict, uh, in particular uh, insurgency and revolution and guerrilla war within these societies, what, how these stresses might contribute to those kinds of conflict. And some of those stresses are, are consequences of uh, climate change. Well, in those days, n- that wasn't the case because climate change had not really manifested itself around the world as a, as a, as a stressor yet. Uh, certainly, there weren't major social disruptions occurring yet as a result of climate change. Nonetheless, I spent quite a bit of time with my colleagues thinking through what might happen if the climate did start to change and what the implications would be. And it turns out that a lot of that original analysis we did now uh, quite some time ago uh, is really relevant because now we are seeing climate change affecting people all over the world. And we're seeing real impacts now affecting potentially hundreds of millions of people. Let me ask you what you think about the impact of the awarding of the um, Nobel Peace Prize to Al Gore and um, to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I think it's good. I think that uh, I think that people do need to recognize that uh, climate change has security implications. Now, it can have, in a sense, soft security implications, most obviously, in that it affects people's quality of life. There's a big debate out there among scholars as to how broadly we should define security. And there are some people who want to redefine security so that it it really becomes synonymous with human well-being. And if you're going to define security broadly like that, then there's absolutely no question that climate change is going to have security implications. There are other people, and I kind of put myself in this camp, who say that security should be more narrowly defined as relating to issues of violence and conflict, uh, safety from uh, invasion or attack, if you're talking about national security. And, uh, and I'm quite comfortable with that more narrow, more conventional, more traditional definition. And the key thing is that I think our research has shown, uh, the research that we did many years ago has shown that environmental stress, like climate change, can have big security implications in those narrow terms. It can lead, in combination with other factors, it can lead to violence. It can lead to societal breakdown. It can lead to uh, enormous trauma within societies. So uh, for for both those reasons, I think it was good news that 
the Nobel Peace Prize went to both the IPCC and Al Gore because these are genuinely security issues. Now, that is a controversial position the uh, committee took, and these the statements I'm making are, are controversial. There are some people who think that climate change doesn't have any security implications at all, but I think they're wrong. There are some societies that appear to adapt really well to environmental stress, and others suffer, as you have written, from migrations and from worsened poverty and other factors as well. Why do some societies successfully adapt while others don't? Well, that's really the $64,000 question, Uh, and it really relates to the issue of climate change. Uh, Are we going to have the capacity to respond creatively with innovation with solutions to the climate change challenge that we're facing. Uh, I think of this in terms of what I call an ingenuity gap. In fact, I wrote a book titled The Ingenuity Gap. There are, uh, there are factors that are driving up our requirement for more complicated and sophisticated solutions to our, to our problems. Problems are getting harder, and so we need better solutions, and we need a faster rate of delivery of solutions. And then there are, there are things that actually, in some societies, stop the delivery of solutions, uh, actually prevent societies from responding. Even though problems are getting harder, those societies can't respond. And so in many of the cases we were looking at, we started to dig under the surface and look at the things that would keep uh, people and governments and institutions from effectively solving their problems. Uh, things like corruption, corruption. Uh, um, Governments that don't have adequate finances are not going to be able to effectively um, solve their citizens' problems. Uh, And something that comes up over and over again is the power of special interests who want to maintain the status quo and block any useful reform. In the Philippines, uh, there was a period of time after the Marcos regime collapsed when there was a real push for land reform. And land reform... Uh, redistributing land to poor people in the Philippines is probably a prerequisite to solve their environmental problems. Um, You need to be able to give people property rights. You need to be able to give them the right to some land so they have an incentive to take care of it. Uh, And there was a a sense for a a year or so that things were really going to change, that there was going to be a, uh, there was really going to be serious land reform in the country. But then it was blocked, as it is so often in many of these societies, by powerful landowners and special interests who just wanted to maintain the land arrangements the way they've always been. And that was uh, uh, an opportunity that was, was wasted, and it was a crippling blow to the, the progress of the country in dealing with its problems. And that's, an, that's the kind of thing, the power of special, special interests, the kind of factor that gets in the way of society solving their problems. That, that means that they can't close the ingenuity gap, as I call it. You're a man of academia, you, you are a research person, and you also write articles in more popular magazines. I saw an op-ed piece that you wrote in the New York Times. Do you think this approach, this way of doing things for yourself, has really made a difference in terms of information being more readily acceptable by the general public? I've really made it my agenda try to be a bridge between uh, the scholarly world and the world of academic thinking about these problems 
and the general public. Increasingly, I'm thinking that the problems we face are a manifestation of a, of a radical failure of democracy, that our conventional democratic institutions are not adequate to allow for the kind of flow of solutions and the mobilization around solutions that we need. The only alternative I see at this point is to open up the democratic process, get more people participating, to let knowledge flow from elites and from experts into the general public and create as much experimentation and as much discussion and, uh, and solution generation as we can see within, within the public. And that's one reason I spent a lot of my time writing op-eds and writing books for the general public. Do you have off the top of your head some ideas about how people can wrap their heads around some of these issues and do something in their lives? First of all, I think it's really important that people realize that climate change in particular, which I think is probably ultimately the most threatening environmental challenge human beings will ever face, that climate change is not just a matter of the temperature getting warmer outside. It's going to affect every aspect of our economies and societies and the way we live, and especially the lives of our children and our grandchildren, because the biggest impacts are going to manifest themselves later in this century. Uh, and, and it will have effects on not just quality of life, but on life, period. It's going to affect whether societies can actually maintain themselves as stable, coherent, productive enterprises. So that's the first thing that I think people need to realize. The second thing is that climate change is a, is a tractable problem. It's a problem we can solve. We have the technology, you know, like they used to say in the Six Million Dollar Man. You know, it, it, we, can, we can do this. Uh, it's mostly about will. It's about m mobilization. It's about political leadership. And it's about action at the individual and community level. 50% of the climate change problem is going to be solved by things that people do in their households and in their communities. Individual changes that people make in how much energy they consume, what kind of technologies they use, what kind of lifestyles they lead. We don't have to sacrifice quality of life here, but we do have to change the way we live, uh, probably fairly significantly. And we can still be very, very happy, though. Uh, and that's stuff that can start right now. Uh, you know, people deride Al Gore when he talks about changing light bulbs. But the first step is changing a light bulb. There's a lot more that needs to be done, and a lot of it's going to be a lot harder than changing a light bulb. But the first thing you need to do is think about the simple things and the easy things, and then you can go on to the harder. And it's not possible for everybody to do that. Some of it can be personal at the level of the household. Some of it can be in terms of our own lifestyle practices. And some of it can be in the level of our political our political mobilization and, and lobbying for changes in government policies, and in particular giving courageous political leaders who want to do the right thing the cover that they need, the support they need to go ahead and do it. Uh, and uh, and that, that happens one conversation, one conference, one letter to the editor, one article to a community newspaper, one dinner discussion at a time. Dr. Thomas Homer Dixon oversees the Peace and Conflict Studies Department at the University of Toronto. He spoke with our interviewer, Carol Boss. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you can hear twice as much from each of our guests in that episode from our Peace Talks Radio series by heading to our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, and looking for our March 2008 episode called, Does Climate Change Threaten Peace? 
This is a Peace Talks Radio special, Making Peace with Our Earth. In our next segment, in the wake of repeated human-made environmental accidents of a grand scale, and what some would say humans daily disregard for polluting consequences of modern life, we'll hear some voices of people who have placed their relationship with nature at the center of their lives. That comes after a short break when our special program continues. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. When the British Petroleum Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded in April of 2010 and set off the largest accidental marine oil spill in history, virtually everyone viewing the disruption to wildlife and the lives of the people in that region was devastated. We felt like it probably set off an inner conflict in many about humans' relationship with nature. So we sought out some voices of people who have already placed that relationship at the center of their lives to see how their experiences and thinking might help us all grapple with this conflict. A lot of the headlines during the three months when the oil gushed into the Gulf framed the event as an attack or war on nature. How can we think and act to make peace with nature? Today we speak with a social ecology professor, also a Native American environmental policy activist, But first, we talk with John Francis, whose response to an oil spill in 1971 was to quit riding in motorized vehicles altogether for 22 years and walk all across the country, and during 17 of those years, not to speak a single word. In all that time, he completed the bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. degrees in land management. He's the author of Planet Walker, How to Change Your World One Step at a Time, and he talked with our Carol Boss. It was only about a half a million gallons from two tankers uh, that collided near the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we just rushed to the scene to, to see an oil spill. We've never seen one before. I've never seen one. And we didn't see it because of the fog, but what we did experience was the smell. And I wanted to do something, and I said to my girlfriend, I said, how about us getting out of our, our cars and just walking? She kind of laughed at me. You're talking about not just walking um, uh, down the beach. You were talking about a, a larger uh, decision. Absolutely. I mean, I was talking about getting rid of our involvement with the motor with motor transport altogether. Meaning, we walk to the store, we'd walk to the movies, wherever we had to go, um, we would walk. That presented you with an opportunity to um, to change, didn't it? Well, it did. You know, and, and I think that these uh, events happen in our lives all the time. There are all certain kinds of events that happen that give us an opportunity to, to make a difference in, in our own lives 
And eventually what happens is when we make a difference in our own lives, we are making difference in, in, in each other's lives. But what happened was because in my community people saw me walking uh, and they started to argue with me about how one person really can't make a difference. And, and I didn't know if that was true or not. I just found myself arguing all the time. Here I am walking around in this beautiful environment, and all I do is argue with my, my friends and my neighbors who often felt that what I was doing was something to make them look bad. And so on my birthday, I took the extraordinary step of um, deciding not to speak for one day. And that was what really changed my life most dramatically. And what happened after that first day of not speaking? What did you notice? Well, the first thing that, that I noticed about not speaking was that I hadn't been listening. And because I hadn't been listening, I had stopped learning. I would just listen long enough to believe that I understood or knew what the other person was going to say. And then I would stop listening to them. And I would start thinking about um, how I was going to say that they were wrong or that, yes, they were right, but I could say that better, or I was smarter than they were and this is what I had come up with. And that one day I realized that I had not been listening and that um, I had stopped learning. And I stopped speaking for another day and another day until finally uh, I had decided that I was going to not speak for a year, and I would ask myself on my birthday if that was still appropriate because I was learning so much. And it allowed me to uh, put myself, the things that I believed, aside to listen to someone uh, more fully. You took very large walks uh, across the country. Would I be correct in in saying that, in a sense, all of this was part of a, a recognition on your part of a personal responsibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you talk about that? Well, um, as I <laughs> was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge with my girlfriend in our four-wheel drive vehicle, I understood that part of what was washing up on the shore I had some responsibility because here I am driving a, a motorized vehicle and we're using this oil and I wanted the oil quickly, I wanted it cheaply, I, I wanted lots of it. And because of that, the industry, I was creating a demand as we all do. The industry was responding to that demand. Now, absolutely, oil companies have a greater preponderance of the responsibility, especially when they spill it. but. In all fairness, I, I have to take some of the responsibility myself. Did that bring you a sense of peace in any way? Not right away, <laughs> because I think that when I made those decisions, I, I, I did make them with a kind of chip on my shoulder. And, and, and that's when I was arguing with, with uh, my neighbors and my friends and colleagues about what it was I was doing and how it was going to make a difference. When I stopped talking, it, that allowed me to step back from that and, and, to, and to rediscover something, and that that was the, the grounding of, of what I was doing and, and who I was, and, and that the walking actually went beyond a protest of oil spills, and the silence went beyond a protest of oil spills, but this was something even bigger than that, 
that was going to allow me to rediscover who I was and who I had to be in, in the world or the planet. For the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, which was in 1990, you uh, arrived on the East Coast, and it was there, wasn't it, that you decided to speak? I had walked across the United States, um, studied oil spills all the way up to a Ph.D. level. Uh, environment was uh, my degree. And when I got to the East Coast, I finally had something that, that I needed to say. Environment, to me, had changed. When I started out, it was just about pollution and soon became about loss of species and loss of habitat, all those things we traditionally think of environment. But what I understood was, and it was in the literature, is that people are part of the environment. And if people were indeed part of the environment, then our first opportunity to treat the environment in a sustainable way, or even to understand what sustainability is, is in the relationship with ourselves and with each other. If we related to each other with respect and love and dignity and not looking to, I guess, exploit one another, to oppress each other, if we, if we really treated each other the way we wanted to see our physical environment treated, then we would find that what would happen in our physical environment would be a mitigation of a lot of the problems and a lot of the issues that we are facing today. For example, and this is a very simple, very simple example, if I were a, a manufacturer and I lived on a river and I was making widgets, of course, and widgets were wonderful, everybody wanted them, but in making widgets, there's a waste product which I was dumping into the river. In economic terms, that's called an externality because I don't have to pay for getting rid of that waste product. As it goes downstream, my company learns that it's actually causing health problems to the town downstream and that they actually have to pay to clean up the river in order to keep from having these health problems. Now, if I were thinking like, hey, you know, how we treat each other is how we treat the environment. Right away I would say, oh, my God, let's stop. We have to stop and figure out how we're going to take care of this. If I weren't, I might say, well, listen, I want us to bury that memo, and we're not going to do nothing until people absolutely make us do something. And, and in that way, you can see how our relationship, our personal relationship with ourselves and with each other and understanding our connectedness uh, would actually make a difference in the environment. I know that it's easy for people to turn the TV off or to put a newspaper aside and create some distance between themselves and a tragedy such as the Gulf oil spill. How does a person know when it's their moment to make a decision? Well, when the tears are running down your face, when you, you've heard something on the news, or when you have read it in the paper, um, you know that there's an opportunity for you to make a change, to do something. Because right then, right then, you have passion to do it. Maybe the tears will go away. They will go away. But at that moment, you know that there's something that's, that's touching you on an emotional level, and you can do something. 
John Francis, who gave up motor transport from 1972 to 1994 and remained silent during most of those years in response to a West Coast oil spill. In 1991, he was named a United Nations Environmental Program Goodwill Ambassador, and he's written the book Planet Walker, How to Change Your World One Step at a Time. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today on Peace Talks Radio, we're asking for thoughts on humans and the environment in the wake of 2010's Gulf oil disaster. Kathy Wanpovi Sanchez is a potter, producing the highly sought-after blackware from San Ildefonso Pueblo in New Mexico, carrying on the tradition of her ancestors. She's also a community activist working on nuclear, water, domestic, and sexual violence issues as a member of Tewa Women United. Carol Boss asked her for the Native American perspective on resource extraction, drilling, mining, and the like. The perspective is that um, it should not happen. Um, it is drilling and in water or on land is about an extraction, taking part in a process of the, di- of the death and dying. And we're not allowing the materials to go through their process of the whole years and that it takes to be in Mother Earth and in their grave and in being able to be of use again within a million years. And we're just scratching the surface and taking out bodies, and that's not right. Now, you said taking out bodies. What do you mean by that? Well, the fossil fuel of oil is the di- bodies of dinosaurs. They're ancient um, animals that have been buried in the ground, and they need to go through their death process. They need to be reclaimed and recharged and cleansed and then be able to come to the surface again in the natural years that it takes for that to happen. Extraction is violence if you're reaching into Mother Earth without the permission, without the sacredness that it takes to allow our natural world to be not harmed by our actions. Can you describe how you received the news of the Gulf oil disaster and how you felt in the days that followed the news that just continued to get worse? Well, believe it or not, I was in Colombia a couple of days before then, and I was on the taxi with a guy who works on a rig like that off the coast. I felt anger. I felt frustration in a company um, being doing the business that they were that close and in Mother Earth. I still feel that way about um, drilling and access fishing and anything that is in access and not in its natural place. And if it's not a natural process. And I you feel um, that overwhelmingness of what's going to happen to people, what's going to happen to the fish, what's going to happen to the spirits of the water. You feel that sickeningness, but you feel that anger first. And that's part of the grief process. That's part of the um, seeing that pain. I think pain, grief and loss is in everybody's purview to to um, react. How are you going to react? And in dealing with... Um, grief and death and loss. It, anger is the first thing that pops up. Anger and um, pointing, some, pointing it at somebody else. You, you, but then in the long run, what ends up is that you then start into thinking and praying and asking and being in that flow of what can I do? How do I make my presence be of service to the people that I can't just travel over there and give them all my money or give them all my food or give them... I, so people stop there and they get numbed down. They say, well, I can't really do anything worthy of, of an action. So then they hold back 
And so I think that's where the downfall is that that's what they would want us to do. But in reaching out, in doing what you can do within your means, within your ability, in prayer, in asking, and act on it. Because when you do it, and when you speak that truth from the heart, when you act that truth from the heart, nothing can stop you. Did your organization, Tewa Women United, respond um, specifically to the Gulf oil disaster? I think we responded by doing a lot more water ceremonies because water spirits are connected multiversally. We had a group that following week here from, um, I think, North Carolina, and they were also like in a dilemma saying, well, what do we do? I, I, we don't know what, we're, we're not related. We don't want, we don't have to be. And I said, you're water people. You carry the water in you. Just go to the nearest water. Give love and thanks to the spring, to the lakes, to the water, to the water you drink before you wash your face. Give love and thanks. And when you do that, that energy of that love, that water feels, they're going to feel that down there as well. Kathy Sanchez, how do Native Americans who are conscious of um, caring for the earth act in their everyday life that connects them with this relationship with nature, such as shopping and and using vehicles and and building your homes? I think um, as um, conditioned humans into this culture of violence, and if we want to be about the culture of peace, we need to do it within our means. We need to think about what we are capable of doing, whether they're baby steps, big leaps of change, what we are able to do, we should do. And it starts with prayer. Everybody can say their good thoughts. Everybody can always be conscious of offering a thank you, a smile. You have to be about purposeful living. And then you define that for yourself. What is purposeful living? Yes, maybe we have to shop, but where do we shop? Yes, maybe we're shopping 90% of our time. Let's cut it down to 60%. Let's make our own things. Let's barter. Let's exchange. Let's give without having to expect money. And how do you cut down? How do you start How do you start being more in walking on Mother Earth as opposed to zipping in a car going fast? Because then time is an element that has been taken from us. Let's claim our time to be with each other back again. Is there a way to ask for permission and use Earth's resources uh, appropriately? Yes, there is. When we do our pottery, when we make our pottery, we have to get the clay. And so we offer our prayers and ask for permission to take. And we only take that which will sustain us. Kathy Sanchez, can you imagine a way BP or mining companies, uh, other resource extractors could actually add steps like prayers, permission asking, that would make resource extraction more acceptable? Wow, it's going to take a whole bunch of giving up something that they ain't willing to do right now. But I think it is so darn possible if they think about what is their purpose in life. And not so much what is their purpose in life, but who is their purpose in life? Who are they serving? Who are they trying to give life to? And I think um, once you change your perception of a what is my purpose, to who is my purpose, I think they'll see that what business they're in needs to be curtailed, cut back, and then to the point where you're going back to replace that which you've taken, and then close that which you're taking, 
and a scab was going to form on that wound because once you're dug a hole in Mother Earth and you've taken, 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 you've created an imbalance in the cycle and you need to put that, allow that healing scab to be there and then let that um, heal itself. Mother Nature will heal itself. It's time that we uh, really acknowledge who we are and how people are connected to Mother Earth, how we are landed people. We are land-based people. We are community people. We are, we're not put on this uh, Mother Earth as individuals. We're in a society. We're in a family. We're in a relationship. And even if a, a human were alone in an island, there's still the animals. There's still the trees that take care of us, that give us shelter, that give us food. We really need to think about relational presence. Kathy Sanchez from New Mexico's Tewa Women United. She's traveled around the world speaking on behalf of indigenous peoples, advocating for non-proliferation treaties, for global disarmament, and respectful use of natural resources. Two days after the Deepwater Horizon rig blew in April of 2010, long before the extent of the oil spill's damage would be truly known, University of New Mexico environmental sociology professor Daniel Schwartz delivered a talk he called perfect storms and paradigm shifts to a standing room only crowd in the student union building on campus. Carol Boss talked with him several months later when the well had finally been capped in the Gulf. Imperfect human beings only make imperfect technologies and therefore these accidents are quite normal. They happen on a regular basis. I expect these kinds of accidents to happen because given enough wells or 4,000 alone in the Gulf of Mexico, they're expected to blow. Let me ask you this. Your response, how did you feel? What were your reactions um, at the time? My reactions are always very sad because I understand the depth of this tragedy from a biological and an ecological point of view. The entire Gulf has been a, uh, a natural disaster area and a natural national sacrifice area for a long time. The military has dumped shells and uh, military hardware after World War II. Uh, there's very little environmentalism uh, among the southern states. It's one of the most conservative areas of the country, and oil has a lot of control. And the tragedy is still not fully understood. Daniel, you're teaching juniors and seniors. If you can get to the essence of what you would like to instill in these future guardians of our dear Mother Earth... One of the things I try to get across is the earth is alive. It uh, has a very powerful force for life. And no matter what happens to the earth, life seems to continue on earth. We've had some very terrible things happen that have nothing to do with humans. 65 million years ago, uh, at least half the species disappeared. But life continues. I want to get that across. Uh, that earth is still a very beautiful place. There's beauty wherever one looks. And I tell them to remind me of that sometimes when I talk about the seriousness of these issues. That we have to start thinking and always put earth in our hearts and sort of making peace with nature because right now we're at war with nature. And I think that's another piece to it. Uh, this this uh, idea that nature's here simply to be used by humanity in what, by whatever means necessary. I think these kinds of things are extremely important. The life support system of this planet is diminishing. And we need to make a turn. 
We need to change the paradigm or paradigms. I present different paradigms. One of the new paradigms is called the precautionary principle, where we, we don't look at how much harm should be uh, allowable, but how little harm is possible. The city of San Francisco has taken up the precautionary principle. Um, a number of European countries have taken up the precautionary principle. You don't just go ahead and uh, put out some chemical into the environment or, or do some process and then wait to see what the effects are. It's simply too dangerous. And that's one of the problems of uh, drilling down 30, 35,000 feet after you've drilled, after you've gone down a mile into the ocean uh, to look for oil. And also what that does is marginalize uh, alternative energy sources. So the new paradigms are important. I was hoping that the President of the United States would make a statement like this. How can we achieve prosperity with fairness and equality while minimizing harm to people, other living beings, and the environment? That would be a new paradigm. That statement alone would be a new paradigm. Daniel Schwartz, are there other paradigms you have to offer that give people concrete options? Let me relate a personal story very quickly. When I was 15 years old, I lived along one of the old transport canals uh, near the uh, Delaware River, which separates New Jersey and Pennsylvania. That transport canal we used for swimming and boating and fishing and just hanging out. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful ecosystem with lightning bugs and so on. That transport canal will always be in my heart. The transport canal, in the name of progress, was transformed into a freeway. It was cemented over with little or no resistance. It was thought of as progress, and people did not act in their own interest, and they traded in the tr this beautiful, wonderful canal and that whole ecosystem for a noisy, rather odiferous freeway system with constant noise and constant odors, and gave it up in the name of an ideology instead of thinking, what's in our interest? And I think that's, that happens often with the notion of progress. We don't look at the larger picture. We become rational or rationalized without looking at reason and history and the kinds of, of things that make life worth living. If somehow we thought that uh, a freeway, uh, the noise and, and the cars would somehow be better for people living in a neighborhood than this wondrous canal. So the canal lo lo no longer exists. And I think that kind of thing happens all, all, uh, in different places and different times. Uh, we need to rethink uh, notions of progress. Progress for whom? Daniel, are you ever challenged by students or, or others about um, the whole notion of, you know, we can't go back to a pre-industrial society. Um, these are all advances, and this is part of what a modern society is all about. The, it's a very good question. Uh, no, of course we're not going to go back to being hunters and gatherers. But hunters and gatherers lived in balance with their environment. Right now we have an anthropocentric system 
that we're humans are in the center of things. We need to move, I think, to an ecocentric system where we can learn to live a little more lightly. We can do more recycling. We need to think about uh, consumption. And it's very, very difficult when you have advertising, when you have new technologies constantly being invented. Uh, New technologies tend to be very anti-democratic. No one asks us if we want these things. No one, we don't vote on them. It's interesting. We think of, of progress mainly now as technological progress. Uh, so a lot of our technologies, new technologies, are used in war. Uh, wh- why would we want to go in that direction? Why would we want to spend all that money to do these kinds of things that n- don't necessarily, and of course do not, uh, enhance, in my estimation, the human condition whatsoever? I think that's the new paradigm and we can't go on at business and politics as usual because we're in a new age. And it's only hyper-individualism and uh, uh, this idea that we can isolate ourselves and quarantine ourselves from the natural world that gets us into trouble, uh, that somehow things outside can go very wrong in the natural world, but we can hide out, and we can't hide out anymore. Daniel Schwartz teaches at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. He holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology and advanced degrees in sociology, social behavior, and medical anthropology. To hear an hour-long version of this program and to read more about our guests, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003, order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a free podcast or a newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program. All at peacetalksradio.com. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, AMP Concerts, Albuquerque's roving concert series at ampconcerts.org, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio. And stay tuned for even more of our Peace Talks Radio special, Making Peace with Our Earth, right after a short break.
This is our number two of a Peace Talks radio special, Making Peace with Our Earth. I'm Paul Ingalls, co-founder and producer of our long-running radio series and podcast called Peace Talks Radio. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. As we've shown a light on peacemaking efforts throughout history and today, on both an international scale and in our daily lives, we've often addressed the conflict and consequences that humans have wrought on the environment. We've assessed the scope of the problem and talked with people who have ideas about what to do about it. And you're getting to hear some of the highlights of that coverage today. Later in this hour, some still relevant conversations from a 2010 program we produced about whether international negotiations over water rights and access to clean water can point the way towards peace. But first, a 2020 program we produced in a year of record-breaking wildfires and storms that science suggests is a result of human-induced climate change. The collective feeling of despair these events have brought has been labeled by some eco-anxiety or climate grief. Our correspondent Sarah Holtz got three perspectives on climate anxiety from a scholar, a journalist, and an artist. We begin the segment with Francis Roberts Gregory, an environmental sociologist who investigates the intersections between sustainability and social justice. Through a black feminist lens, Francis focuses on frontline communities which are disproportionately impacted by climate change, and she's working to increase their representation in STEM education, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Here's Sarah Holtz. What are some of the best ways to combat misinformation about climate change? I think there's a lot of approaches. So from a climate communications perspective, for change, you need dialogue. Oftentimes, scientists or even well-meaning advocates and activists, we come in saying, I'm right, you're wrong, listen to me. And the conversation is very unidirectional. But we need multidirectional dialogue, which means that you really do have to like share, listen. I would also say psychology is really important. To admit that climate change exists means that there's limits to growth. That challenges a lot of traditional economic theories that people hold. It challenges this idea that America is a place where everyone has opportunity and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it challenges people who are taught to think in linear ways and to think in hierarchies. So really to combat this misinformation, it really begins with stories having an open heart dialogue, and also having some empathy, I would say, because to attack people's deeply held beliefs, it's almost religious beliefs at this point, it's very disconcerting. And people don't do well with uncertainty. You see the panic with the um, crisis around COVID-19. We don't teach people how to manage uncertainty and change. I think a lot of Frontline communities, communities of color are used to dealing with uncertainty because we're always existing in a state of crisis. But for other folk, it challenges everything. So I think we have to like figure out ways to allow people to grieve, deal with that anxiety so that they can, you know, admit that there is a problem and then be encouraged to participate in actions to deal with the problem. I know for a while, we really just need to work with people who are willing to listen and, you know, plant seeds because you might plant a seed in a denier today. It might not sprout for like 10 or 20 years, but I promise you, once we keep having disasters like the fires, the floods, the droughts, the food shortages, there's people who are publicly deniers, but 
in the privacy of their homes, they understand what's going on because they're being impacted. In thinking about all the ways that climate anxiety is manifesting both for folks who are maybe in denial and those who are in frontline communities, what are some examples of climate resilience that you've seen? So for me, when I think of resilience, I think of people who dare to dream, to smile, to laugh, to dance, to build, despite like hundreds of years of violence. All of the frontline communities, the communities that have just struggled so much, where that trauma is like almost like embedded in our DNA, how like figured out ways to make lemonade, you know, take lemons and make lemonade, you know, to invo- <laughs> to invoke all my grandmas and Beyonce. I just, I mean, that that is for me the audacity to to get up every morning for me is resilience. I should also say that resilience is a controversial word because people are tired of having to be resilient. (laughs) Like, why? Like, why? Why? Why do we keep having to fight? Why? Like, it's tiring. And I guess in a more climate, for a more climate-focused conversation, I think that the women who are engaged in green infrastructure inspire me. They're saying, hey, we're tired of the street flooding, so we're going to have rain gardens and rain barrels. That inspires me. I think about the folk who are engaging in sustainable, organic, regenerative farming, who are bringing back heirloom varieties, who are figuring out ways to grow um, using aquaponics and agroecology. I think about also the folk who are living in ceremony, who are practicing gratitude figuring out ways to, um, I guess in the words of Adrienne Marie Brown, promote pleasure activism, to find joy within toxic landscapes and despite ongoing chronic violence. We all have a role to play. And I definitely say I want to increase the representation of underrepresented folk in climate policy spaces because these spaces are still mostly white and male. And that's not appropriate. And also, um, there's so much creative potential in frontline communities, indigenous communities, women of color, um, women in general. So I really want to increase our representation in these decision making spaces. And I want to share these stories like that's my role as a griot. That's my role as a feminist anthropologist, as a black geographer to share these stories, hope that they inspire Uh, a call to action. As an Afrofuturist, I really hope that our futures are based in healing. The idea of resilience is to return to the past and the status quo. And I don't want to return to the status quo. I want something better. I want something great. I also know that you identify as an eco-womanist. What's an eco-womanist? So an eco-womanist, as defined by Dr. Melanie Harris, is a feminist environmentalist, a woman of color who connects the personal to the political and political to the personal. And really this um, is based off of the work of the great Alice Walker. She coined the term womanism, which is women of color's version of feminism, because many women of color had an issue with how white middle-class women had co-opted the feminist movement. So they said, we need our own term that relates to our own experiences. But a womanist is 
a feminist of color. So an eco-womanist is a feminist of color who is uh, believes that women of color have unique solutions for environmental degradation and addressing the climate crisis, also who um, are really connected to ancestors and future generations and understanding what a woman of color environmental ethic looks like. Yeah, and you've also written about the importance of a feminist lens on the global Green New Deal. Could you talk about that? Yeah, of course. So although we can debate for days about the wording of Green New Deal, is that appropriate? Like there's baggage that comes along with that language. We do need policies that make sure that there is a earth for future generations and that we are thinking about equity when we talk about renewables and living more sustainably when we talk about green infrastructure. And we also have to bring in intersectional perspectives because when we don't center frontline communities, indigenous communities, when we don't center women, when we don't center human rights youth, we actually exacerbate the problem. Most people don't realize that climate change does not impact us all equally. Climate change actually exasperates existing gendered and racialized inequalities. And so using an intersectional perspective, we can talk about how after many disasters, there's a rise in gendered violence, domestic violence, and also sex trafficking, violence against indigenous women. We can talk about how women make up the bulk of the membership of grassroots organizations, how women are water protectors, how reproductive justice is connected to climate change, and how when we have extreme weather and disasters, there's a rise in preterm births. Women uh, who uh, deal with children with low birth weights, even like how it impacts LGBTQ communities and the and their inability to maybe access resources and hormones or how they might not have access to certain shelters or they're put in shelters that are inappropriate that exposes them to increased violence. I would just finally add that it's important to understand that when we talk about gender and climate change, although I focus on women and women of color, Gender is not synonymous with women. (laughs) Gender is everyone. Everyone, gender impacts everyone. Everyone has a gender, you know, gendered norm. So we're talking about impacts on men, on women, on um, non-binary folk, LGBTQ communities. And there's a need for greater research. But once again, we're, we're having to take baby steps so that people first understand that there is a climate crisis, that it doesn't impact everyone equally, and that the people who contribute the least to greenhouse gas emissions are usually the ones most impacted by uh, disaster. You can hear more of Sarah Holtz's interview with environmental sociologist Francis Roberts Gregory at our website. Visit peacetalksradio.com and look for our April 2020 episode. Next up, we hear from journalist Peter Fimwright, whose job changed dramatically in 2017. That was the year of the Wine Country fires in Northern California, the second most devastating blaze in the state's history. He covers science and environment for the San Francisco Chronicle. And today he can tell you exactly where he was when he first smelled smoke in the fall of 2017. I remember that night when they first began. I came out of a movie with my daughter and it was really warm, unusually warm and extremely windy. I mean, it was just, I'd never really felt that before, how windy it was. And then I started smelling smoke 
and I knew something was big was going on. And I, right then I got a call from my editor and I, I got in my car and went out to the fires. Well, as I was driving out there, the flames were lit, were shooting up on both sides of the car. And I actually <laughs> drove through flames at one point, uh, licking up against the car and ashes flowing. It was, it was quite scary. And, uh, Several other reporters have had that same experience um, and th- that night and during the campfire. And a lot of these fires have been like that, really strong winds. I think I left at around 1130, 12 and ended up working all night on the fire with no sleep. So and the connection to climate change, the, the, the fires have been unusual and people are starting to realize that that something's going on. When I initially reached out to you, you had just come off of doing a story about the Australian bushfires. Can you talk about what that reporting process was like? Well, yeah. I mean, Australia has a similar climate. I mean, it's much, much bigger than California, but it has a similar climate, a warmer, actually a drier and warmer climate in, in many places. Their fires this year have been just absolutely catastrophic similar to what California went through over the last few years. So I, I covered those fires in Australia, wrote about how they are similar to California's and talked to climate scientists about sort of the, the similarities. To what extent do you think grassroots activism will lead to systemic change? Systemic change will come when people uh, demand action, so yes. I think uh, basically any action uh, requires the public to be behind it. So, I mean, any systemic change requires, I think, the public to be behind it. So I think that's a really important part. The scientists are already, you know, 98% or so, 99% uh, all uh, believe that climate change is here. It's happening. uh, It's caused by humans. But there's a whole segment of the United States and the world who just doesn't believe it. How do you approach conversations with folks who don't believe in climate change? I'm not going to argue with their point of view. Uh, everybody has a right to their point of view, but, but they don't have a right to any kind of facts that they want. Facts are the facts. So that's what I stick with. I tell, you know, I tell them what I know and what the scientists say what the research has shown. But it does irritate me that uh, there are a lot of uh, completely false um, narratives going around. And so, I mean, I try to stick with the facts and, and, and tell people what, what's really happening. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And also potentially your role as a reporter pointing to the evidence will eventually impact public opinion. Well, I mean, I think circumstance will also, you know, play into it. I think over time, people are seeing flood, more flooding, more fires. The sea levels are rising already in, in some places. Over time, uh, people are going to have to realize what's happening and uh, take action. Whether it's uh, in time or not is the question. 
You can hear more of Sarah's interview with journalist Peter Fimright at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can hear her entire interview, or you can hear the longer version of our program there. Just look for the April 2020 episode at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls with Sarah Holtz, as today we explore how we're handling the anxiety around climate change. And now Monique Verdan, an artist and storyteller in South Louisiana. Her work illuminates the experience of her community, the Mississippi River Delta's indigenous Huma Nation. Here Monique describes her debut documentary film. My Louisiana Love is about an hour long documentary. And through this kind of personal lens of just documenting my life and my family, there ends up being this multi-generational, yeah, stories of my grandmother and her being raised in, you know, what is now disappearing or disappeared land in some cases, um, but was a place as a child when she, you know, there were prairies, um, there were pecan groves, um, there was a healthy ridge. And to recognize that in one's lifetime, how quickly things have changed here and how that loss of land and connection to the water yeah, that the side effects are us as a, a people being disconnected from our life ways and literally our ability to feed ourselves. I kind of think of it as putting a parenthesis around the last hundred years in South Louisiana, but from an indigenous perspective from a, per, a hyper, hyper personal perspective, which was not the original intention when I started collecting footage in the late 90s. So, you know, I think for me and making my Louisiana love, it has also been me trying to understand what's happening here. Yeah, no. And, you know, I'm super curious about the land memory Bank and Seed Exchange. How did that get started and what are you hoping to accomplish? We need more spaces where we can come together and be like, okay, this is where we are. This is what we're losing. What do we think is needs to be remembered and collected and shared and distributed? And how do we do this? From plant material to memories and photographs. The Land Memory Bank and Seed Exchange um, came out of a project called Cry You One. Cry You One being a saying that uh, Cajun fiddlers would say instead of let me play you a song, they would say let me cry you one. In 2013, this kind of part performance, part procession, part eco experience um, happened in my community of St. Bernard Parish. And um, I was invited to come on as a design, like part of the design team at first. And then they started making me like read some of the poetry. And then I was suddenly, you know, they made me like kind of the protagonist, this like weird role. I don't know. Uh, it was an interesting project. And I have I had never worked in performance art before. So to try to tell the story of South Louisiana in a way of like, if you got to leave, what are you going to bring with you? Because we have no way to really mourn what's being lost here. And so I have this 16-foot geodesic dome. So we set this 
dome on the land that we were working. And then we covered half of it with palmettos. So it looked like a traditional Homa structure when you first approached it. Um, but then the backside was covered um, with another kind of amber material. And then I had woven some of my photographs, which I output on transparencies into that skin. Um, and it created this weird, beautiful stained glass effect almost where the light would shine in if you were inside of the structure. And it was a bit of a holding space for folks because we had to transport them across this little canal. And that experience for me was so powerful and so intimate. Um, but what ends up being really magical and something that is not easy to document is that when we activate the space um, and, you know, we've done different kinds of installations with sharing photographs and maps and of the community and people come into these spaces that we create and their memory, it's, you know, vocalized and then another person's you know history and reference points and connect and it's like getting people to get in the same space with each other and then to to be able to reflect and I think that there are community meetings here all the time and they're not productive um, I think when you give somebody three minutes to basically try to <laughs> defend their way of life and their home um and then you're like okay your uh, minutes up like get out of here it's more frustrating than it is productive and in so many cases it feels like the officials who are hosting those meetings are just going through the motions the decisions have al already been made and there's really no steering that and whether that means like a pipeline project or a river diversion or whatever other public good. You know, you mentioned that one of the proposed solutions from the state is this engineering intervention that sort of supposes that, OK, maybe it's too late. Do you work within that framework or are there ways to solve the problem? Or at this point, since a lot of your work is so personal and focused on place and family and, and home? Is it about preservation or all of the above, I guess? Yeah. Recently, my new mantra is remain and reclaim. I think that lift or leave doesn't feel right. Retreat and return. That's a big maybe. Yeah. But I also wonder often if I'm kidding myself, you know, like, did I drink the Kool-Aid too and think that like, I can build a house on a concrete slab on top of land that is essentially like putting land and there be a big levee wall around me that, you know, the federal government spent like a billion dollars to build and is sinking and, you know, but I can get flood insurance, <laughs> like, you know, okay, I'll get a mortgage on that, like first time homeowner, what, you know, I, there's this, there are times where I'm talking like out of both sides of my mouth saying, yeah, you know, home is home. There's no place like home. Plant your fruit trees and like keep your seeds growing and like... And then there's another part of me that's like, you know what? I live right down the street from two major oil refineries and I've 
packed my car too many times um, to evacuate, to be naive and think that I won't have to do that again. And I also know I don't really ha- know where to run to. So, yeah, I'm a calm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense, though, that what you said, uh, you know, kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth, because a situation as complex and, you know, rife with systemic inequality, it's going to force people to mm-hmm. have to operate in, like, both mindsets at all times. Yeah. I mean, I think when I really think about what I need most, it is my community. I think that, you know, when everyone was scattered to the wind after Katrina and then that ability to come home, but also that people have to leave home all the time, all over the world for many different reasons. And that as time goes on, that I think the great migration from the coast (laughs) has already begun. And it will continue. But also at the same time, I think that we have a right to maintain a relationship with the land and the water because it is family as well. You know, I feel like Chicken Little a lot, like the land is sinking, the oil is coming, the, you know, whatever. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, we might be on the verge of the apocalypse or it just happened. I'm not sure. (laughs) I feel that way sometimes. And I think that, you know, if you allow the nature to do what it knows to do, it has the ability to heal itself with a little bit of support and a little bit of like oomph behind it. You know, if you help to to shepherd that just a tiny bit, it's really inspiring to know that we should be more in collaboration with nature than this kind of domination that we've had over the land. I live in the heart of Cancer Alley, just north of the dead zone, in a place that provides, the statistic used to be a third of the nation's oil and gas was being provided through South Louisiana. Now with like the fracking boom, we're retrofitting pipelines to export fossil fuels to international markets. And we have made the ultimate sacrifice. And I think it's really important for us to all remember that we're connected to this, that the Delta doesn't just matter for me. It matters for like planetary well-being. Um, This is a PowerPoint where life comes to be born, where birds stop on great migrations, and, you know, where cypress forest used to be thousand-year-old trees all around. And if we allow the nature to do what it does, it can survive this, but we're going to have to let go of believing that we can control it. You can hear more of Sarah Holtz's interview with Monique Verdan, the artist and storyteller from South Louisiana. Visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear the entire interview that Sarah did with Monique by clicking on Monique's photo on the episode webpage, April 2020. You can also find a link there to a longer version of this program, which has more from Sarah's interviews with all of our guests today. That's at peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all of the programs in our series dating back to 2002. 
It's like a Peace Studies curriculum there, and I invite you to click through the program titles and find ones that really intrigue you. It's a wide variety, believe me. You'll find the audio available for download there from each episode. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, see pictures of guests, read and share partial transcripts, and follow links to other resources on each episode's topic. That's all at peacetalksradio.com. And there's a donate button there, too, if you want to add your support to our nonprofit efforts to keep this program on the air and available to you and to all into the future. Most of our support comes from folks like you donating what they can. I'm Paul Ingalls with thanks to Sarah Holtz for this segment of our special program today. And in a moment, some still relevant conversations from a 2010 program we produced about whether international negotiations over water rights and access to clean water can point the way towards peace. When our Peace Talks radio special, Making Peace with Our Earth, continues right after this break. listening to a Peace Talks Radio special, Making Peace with Our Earth. I'm Paul Ingalls, the co-founder and producer of the Peace Talks Radio series. Since 2002, our public radio series and podcast has been devoted to exploring what we call the art and science of peacemaking and conflict resolution strategies. And among the many peacemaking topics we've explored, we've several times included a look at conflicts related to climate change and natural resources. And we close our special today with an episode we issued in 2010, that is still relevant today. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight peacemakers throughout history and today and try to glean some strategies that we can all apply to reducing conflict in our daily lives. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with Carol Boss. Aaron Wolf, a geoscience professor at Oregon State University, also has another job. For some time now, he's been one of the go-to guys when nations in conflict, or sometimes in outright war with each other, are trying to negotiate treaties specifically on water issues. He says that throughout history, and even today, whenever he's found conflict between nations, he's generally found agreement over management of water resources. And in facilitating negotiations, he's learned that sometimes you have to abandon that image that we've all come to associate with international negotiations. You know, teams from both sides sitting across from each other, usually with an enormous wooden table between them. Psychologically or energetically, this turns out to be one of the worst uh, positions to be in uh, when you're negotiating. Uh, if you if you think about energetically, it's it's very easy to conflict or to or to see people's anger, passion when you're looking at them 
across from you. And yet, when we pray, generally we pray side by side. And so one of the things that we've done is, is again, in our training and facilitation, is, is often put people who have the most difficulty with each other side by side, very, very close together. And this changes the dynamics perceptibly. The, the energy is very different psychologically. It's very difficult to argue sideways. So one thing that anybody can use, or two skills, when one feels the anger arising and they're in a situation where they'd rather it not arise, is, is simply sit next to the person with whom the tension's arising, sit next to them closely. And the second thing is listen. Listen deeply, listen profoundly, be there for the other person and watch what happens when a person feels profoundly listened to. Those are, are interpersonal skills that anybody can use and, and I'm convinced should use much more often than we do. Aaron Wolf has helped negotiate water treaties between Israel and Palestine, between the former Soviet Union states, also between China, Burma, and Thailand, and between states in the U.S. and other spots around the globe. He talked with Peace Talks Radio's Carol Boss. So you've said that water can be used as a means for people to talk about a shared vision of the future. And I was hoping you could delve into that more and tell us the circumstances under which you first realized that and perhaps give us an illustration. Sure. Well, I, I, I grew up in, in kind of two places where water was subtext to uh, the politics uh, here in Northern California. Um, where, as I was growing up, people were talking about the peripheral canal and water moving from north to south, and a lot of state politics were kind of wrapped around that issue. And we moved back and forth with my family to Israel, where water's been also subtext to the very difficult politics there between Arabs and Israelis. So I kind of grew up understanding that there was a relationship between water and politics, mostly understanding that it was a source of conflict, but also as, as I started to get uh, better trained professionally uh, in both conflict resolution and in water resources management, that uh, also started to understand clearly that this was a, a medium to bring people together because it did flow across boundaries uh, and brought people into, into a room, people with, with very different politics, uh, and gave them a, a language really to talk about their, their future together. So I, I know back when you were writing your doctoral dissertation, the State Department actually asked you to advise uh, the U.S. team on water negotiations um, during the Middle East peace process between Israel and Palestine. And it seems that like we were tackling a whole number of issues. And by and large, it, it, it seems it was a failed attempt except for the water negotiations. And they still go on, I believe. Arabs and Israelis have been talking about water both implicitly and explicitly since all of the states in the region were, were created uh, in the 1940s. And it became very explicit since the peace talks. Um, even though water was, was again, subtext to, to uh, conflict in the lead-up to the Six-Day War, it also became one of the things that both Israelis and Jordanians and then Israelis and Palestinians would talk explicitly about, which then influenced the, the peace talks uh, more broadly. So people who would talk about water would, would induce or, or uh, influence the, the rest of the talks as well. Well, why is it? It seems that conflicts over water resources are are different than those over other resources or issues, and and in some ways it seems to transcend other disputes. Uh, 
I, I think you're right. There, there's a lot of different levels at which we, we relate to water. One is a very practical level. It does flow across boundaries. And so anytime it, it flows either across uh, Arab-Israeli boundaries or Indian-Pakistani boundaries or uh, Oregon-California boundaries, the solutions force people to think regionally. So so on a very practical level, water ignores our, our attempts at, at uh, political separation. Uh, but then I, th- I think you're right. At much deeper levels, uh, it, it hits us at, at each of our levels of humanity or, uh, or of being. So from the physical all the way up through the, uh, through the emotional and intuitive and a, and a spiritual level, uh, it, it hits us more deeply and more broadly and more profoundly, I think, than other, other resources. So again, with Palestine and Israel, even though you know, we can probably call them bitter enemies, they're abiding by um, prior water treaties. And I'm wondering, in what you just said, how prevalent is that? over history and in the present. Oh, it's astonishingly uh, prevalent. Uh, If we look around the world where we find conflict, we also generally find agreements over water resources. Uh, If we look for actual wars between states over shared water resources, we have to go back to uh, 2500 BCE. Uh, The city-states of Lagash and Uma uh, went to war on a tributary of the Tigris uh, 4,500 years ago, and there hasn't been an actual war over water ever since. And in that same time, that, that war also led to the first uh, official treaty between two states over water. And since that time, there have been 3,600 uh, treaties uh, over water resources. So in 4,500 years, there have been zero wars and 3,600 treaties. So the violent conflicts over water are rare. So what are the issues that create conflict over water? Well, the violence at the international level is rare. We, we all know cases where, where water has induced violence at the subnational level. Uh, there are two states in India, for example, that conflict over the, the Kovri River. There's been throughout history uh, tribal violence or, or ethnic violence or, or land, uh, arable land-related violence that also has a water component. So at the subnational level, Unfortunately, violence is is quite um, uh, prevalent. Uh, it's at the international level that it's not. I, I did want to come back to the um, Arab-Israeli uh, context, that it, it goes beyond adhering to treaties. Um, in the second intifada in the, in the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, when it became clear to both sides just how violent the violence was going to be between the two sides, both the Israeli Water Authority and the Palestinian Water Authority took out a joint ad asking both sides to try and respect the infrastructure, the water infrastructure, because it had become so enmeshed that you couldn't harm one side's water without harming your own. Well, maybe you can describe to us one of your first experiences, your formal experiences, mediating about the uh, Salween River, which is the body of water shared by China, Burma, and, and Thailand, and what you learned from that experience. I think I learned a number of things. One, the, the conflict resolution that I'd been trained in had, has been very Western, uh, kind of rational based. Uh, we're taught and we're trained that um, people come to agreements when it's in their interest to agree. And, and that feels very much uh, circular because when you ask, how do you know it's in parties' interest to agree, the only, the only proof is that they came to agreement. So uh, it feels very tautologic. It feels very circular. 
And those of us, anybody who's ever been in a real uh, dispute setting where there's real emotion, a real feeling present, uh, recognizes that there's often much more going on in the room than we can define rationally. It's not a process that you can model uh, simply using checks and balances or, or uh, rational interests. Can you describe perhaps an experience with um, one of those, maybe um, around the Salween River? Sure. The, the kinds of things that we don't learn in, in Mediation 101 was that uh, we had set the date uh, for the, the beginning of our conference. We thought we had all the parties on board. Uh, and then we set the date. It was uh, September 9th, 1999. And we sent out formal invitations. And immediately, the government of, of Burma wrote a very harsh letter uh, complaining about the meeting and, and uh, accusing the, the sponsors of, uh, of bowing into uh, po- political opposition to the Burmese government. Uh, and it was, it was absolutely unclear why the sudden turnaround. Well, it turned out that for them, when we set the date, September 9th, 1999, that came out 9-9-99. And they assumed that we had chosen that date referring to 8 which was the um, election that was canceled and the current uh, military government took power. And so they assumed that we were doing some kind of numerologic political statement. Uh, That's the kind of thing that you can never prepare for and have to understand that there's so much more going on than than the things you'd like to think are on the table. So you got to realize that something was really missing from the conflict resolution process. And I know that I've read about um, this aha moment that you had. Well, I think part of it was was a kind of nagging feeling that, that we weren't getting the whole picture when we focus on rationality and the things that we can measure. But anybody who's done it knows that there are these kind of transformative moments where suddenly everybody in the room is thinking differently. And the political scientists call that the aha moment. So I, I started to focus on that particular moment, those transformative moments within negotiations, wondering how we can learn more about the context and the settings of transformation. And and where can we learn about this process? Well, one of the images that we work with in in water resources negotiations is one image of a watershed, a river system with political boundaries drawn on the map. And you see how the separations are the things that are stressed. Well, when you take the boundaries off the map, the only thing that's left are the things that unite us. It's the river system itself that flows, the tributaries flow to the the main stem. And I was playing with that image, a basin with the boundaries and a basin without the boundaries, uh, with a, a, a colleague of mine um, who is in an in a international agency, development agency, and also is, is, uh, has a deep spiritual life. And he looked at the images and he said, you know, that looks like an analog for spiritual transformation. And together we started to talk about what it would be like to try and tap into that world of people who've been thinking most deeply about transformative moments or the transformation process to see if we couldn't learn something both about context and settings for transformation, but also tools and, and, and process techniques that we can use to help facilitate our, our mediation processes. Well, that sounds like a um, very profound time for you. And where did it lead you? 
Oh, <laughs> wonderful uh, search. We started with a, a conference uh, co-sponsored with the Pacific Institute uh, in Berkeley and the Vatican Science Council in Vatican City, where we brought people who'd been involved in water negotiation and spiritual leaders together uh, to see if there wasn't something we could learn from each other. So the following year, I spent uh, mostly in the Middle East uh, in Jerusalem, learning uh, some about Kabbalah, about uh, Jewish mysticism, uh, a little bit about Sufism, uh, which is the uh, Muslim ascetic uh, branch, some about uh, Christian um, ascetics. Then spent some time in Thailand learning from a, a Buddhist monk uh, who also was a mediator, mostly with forest issues. Can you tell us what you learned from him? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'll share a little bit of that. Well, I think the, the most profound thing is, is how to be really present in a room. People who've talked to uh, Buddhist monks or, or people with uh, deep uh, meditative training, uh, when you talk to somebody like that, you really feel their presence. They listen. He listened in a way that... I can't remember being listened to before. You really feel like you're absolutely at the center of the universe. And that practice of deep presence, of deep transformative listening, uh, I think was the most important uh, skill that I, I learned uh, first from him and then from, from others. Uh, and he was able to, to carry that presence, that, that uh, simply on, on the basis of his presence and his listening skills, uh, he mediated not only between um, forest dwellers and the government, but also in southern Thailand between Buddhists and Muslims. And he had as much respect in the Muslim community as in the Buddhist community simply because of his presence. So that enabled you, I imagine, to think about how you can do more with conflict resolution. I think those are those are the the kinds of skills that uh, that the spiritual community offers. How to use silence in a in a productive and a, a useful way. Uh, we're not trained in that very well. We're uh, in the rest of the world. They joke about Americans. The, the joke is uh, to an American, what's the opposite of speaking? And the answer is waiting to speak. And, and you notice when you listen to, when you, when you watch people in conversation, that's what they're doing. Their whole body language, their whole uh, energy is, is waiting to jump into the, into the conversation. But we also learn from spiritual traditions around the world this understanding that kind of anger and, and force is generally a shield for vulnerability. And you can't get to the vulnerability until you offer the silence and the space and the, and the listening to allow the anger to uh, spend itself, to dissipate. Uh, and it's only being able to share the vulnerability where you can have a much more productive dialogue. People do different things. In, in India, for example, sometimes there will be a seat with sandals on the seat. This represents the god Hanuman. Uh, who had at one point left his sandals behind to, to represent him. Uh, what this does is, is remind people for whom this is important that a god or god is in the room. Uh, people handle themselves uh, very, very differently. Something as simple, Carol, as, as when we're doing the opening introductions. Uh, generally, again, in the West, we're taught we introduce ourselves in hierarchy. 
where we're from, where our degree's from, what technical training we have. We put ourselves linearly up or down on a hierarchy. Uh, and something as simple as w introducing a group one by one, tell us your name and a story about your relationship with water, or how you got into water, or a story about the watershed where you grew up. Something as simple as that, by the time we've gone around the room, rather than putting ourselves in a linear hierarchy, we've rather crafted, started to craft a community where our shared values are starting to become apparent, or our shared histories, or, or the things that we value together uh, are now more apparent on the table. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions uh, in terms of what our listeners can draw from what we were just talking about in terms of um, their relationship with water mm, and, our, mm. and our sense of thinking about water as a shared resource in our communities. Thank you for that uh, question, Carol. Yeah, I, I think through water, I think at any level, all of us are in a watershed. Uh, water, again, is, is the kind of um, a venue that, that induces all of us, regardless of our political bent, regardless of our economics, regardless of any of the differences that we have with each other, it induces people into the room. And at all levels, whether it's a local watershed council or a regional uh, issue you may have in your community, uh, generally, more and more often, we're urged to, to get involved uh, with the water resources around us. And it, it's a wonderful way to, to sit with uh, members of the community that we may or may may not sit with normally and have a dialogue about our shared uh, futures. Aaron Wolf, water treaty negotiator and professor of geoscience at Oregon State University. For our complete conversation with him, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, and follow the links to the September 2009 episode. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today, how the effort to address the world's water needs can strike a compassionate chord, whether among international rivals or in individuals, inspiring peaceful, humane solutions. Some years ago, two Californians, Matt and Christina, had an opportunity to chaperone a group of Oakland inner-city high school students on an overseas field trip to help expand a school building in a rural Kenyan village about 50 miles southeast of Nairobi. When they learned of the unsafe water supply in that village, Matt, Christina, and the students went on to raise funds to supply the village with water purification packets and to build rain gutters and purchase a water storage tank to help improve the village water supply and to satisfy some of the basic needs required to live in peace and security. The couple later formed a nonprofit organization called Other Paths to allow them to pursue their mission to both offer other paths to inner city youth and to offer other paths to security and peace to rural villages in places like Kenya. Matt and Christina Berlin are married now, and they spoke with our Carol Boss. We went into this with an idea of helping a friend do a specific thing. But when we got there, um, we learned in talking with the people who run the villages, just in conversations with them while we were building on to this school, uh, they were saying our water situation is very bad. And they took us down to the river and showed us where they drew their water. Um, and we saw the animals walking through the water as the women were pulling water. How bad was their water? Um, it's undrinkable, really. From a from a, an American standpoint, it would make you incredibly sick. Um, it's something that we couldn't really handle or or get in or, or wade in. We couldn't walk in it barefoot. We just don't have the immunity to you know the immune system to do that. 
Um, and that's the problem that they have with their children. Children under the age of five in Kenya are susceptible to all the waterborne diseases that are in that water because their immune systems haven't had a chance to develop. And so the mort mortality rates uh, for children under the age of five there are quite high just from waterborne disease alone. Malaria is one of the biggest problems they face, but waterborne disease is second. So you came back to the States determined um, that you were going to take this to another level. And I, I, I want to know about that and also about, um, I want, I'd like to hear more about the impact on the, on, on the kids that went. Well, um, as far as going, growing this program, I think once we all came back, it, it was amazing because I was. I remember sitting in my classroom and a couple. We had been home a couple of days, and one of the students came in and she sat down and we were talking. And she said, "You know, Miss Alex, things look visually different." And I said, "Me too. <laughs> I thought it was just me. There was really no choice for I think any of us." But to go back and because it, I mean, these are this is something we can do. We can do more for for this group of people. We can't change the world. We can't even change all of Kenya. But for these three villages, we can help these folks. We have. Uh, they've told us what they need, and it's not. I wanted to make that clarification. We're not going in telling them what we think they need. While we were there, they told us what they need. Some of the things that we discovered while we were there are things like the pure purifier of water packet is, is a, an interim solution as we look for, for long-term sustainable solutions for them. So we're looking at things like borehole wells and larger water filtration systems and things where they can have more municipal water s systems that are clean as opposed to individual or building-related water systems that are clean. I know on your website it says that other um, paths provide sustainable public health solutions for the people of rural Kenya, mm -hmm. and then it says it all begins with water. One of the things that the folks in these villages um, are missing is health care. They don't have a health clinic. If they get sick or, you know, they get bitten by a snake or are having a baby, they have to travel about eight hours on foot, unless they happen to have access to a vehicle, in order to get to a clinic. So they need a healthcare clinic. And if they had the clean water system, well, then the government would come in and help them with a doctor or a nurse. And UNICEF would come in and provide um, some of the medication to to supply the the clinic and so well and that's a no-brainer so we get you the the water and we build the clinic <laughs> so that and and the government is i mean we've just started this process and the the structure of the clinic is built and the government has already come in and provided more support to these people than they even anticipated so yeah, water water was the key to making all that happen. With all the efforts and and the work that's been done by your organization and 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 with the students and the transformation that's happened with them, do you see that as a bridge to peace in any way? Absolutely. Whether it's between cultures, whether it's within the village, whether it's 
um, within oneself. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that uh, can provide stability, political stability and economic stability, is a foundation of providing for the basic needs of the population. And I think for Kenya, it's very simple, food and water, water being primary, and then healthcare and things, basic necessities that they, uh, that they require to be stable in their own lives. And I think stability in your life brings stability to your community and it spreads out from there. So I'm wondering if you have any ideas for listeners about how they too can make a difference in this kind of a, a way. I think even at the individual level, that it, that effect of being able to listen um, kicked in. I think that's something, a skill that we all picked up initially in our initial trip that we've used again. In a way, the, the, the language barriers, which, which are not too, too bad, but we had to listen very intently to them to hear what they were saying. And then we had to listen a little deeper to hear what they were actually asking us in terms of help. Um, and I think that's something that listening, being a valuable skill toward peace, is a good is a good bridge. Listening to other people, even if it's not something that you're accustomed to hearing or something that you may not agree with, I think it's it's important to develop that awareness of what other people are telling you as opposed to what they're saying. I also think that there are lots of things that you can do to 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 help people in your own community uh, improve the quality of their life, and in doing so making those connections with people, you're building bridges to understanding, which to me is the foundation of peace. What would you like our listeners to see that you think would change the way they think about water and about their day-to-day approach to living? When you see um, some, not even see, when you smell some of the water that these folks drink, Um, And even with the pure packets, we pulled water from one river that, and you know, when you are putting powder in water and you're stirring it up and you tell people to drink, well, you got to drink first. So, and I looked at this water and I said, I don't know, (laughs) I think I might get sick after this one. But when you see that daily, it makes me think when I'm taking my shower, and I love my long hot showers, when I'm taking my shower, when I'm drinking my own water, when I'm watering the grass, or I'm you know, giving water even to the dog, I always think that you know, there are people who, who you know, are, are friends who don't have this. It just makes you really thoughtful about being what we consume. And I think that's one of the things that Matt and I had said years ago is, you know, we, you know, we want to be producers in the world and consume less. Matt and Christina Berlin's organization Other Paths has been assisting a rural village in Kenya purify its water supply and improve water storage and delivery. For more about their organization and to hear our complete conversation with them, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also hear a one-hour version of this program, as well as all of the programs in our series dating back to 2003. You can sign up for a free podcast or an email newsletter and learn how you can help support this program with a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit organization. All happening at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.